Hopefully you all have your notes there and can see that we're going to begin looking at what I'm calling Jesus model prayer. It's known as the Lord's Prayer because the Lord Jesus gave it. Um, And you'll see it says part one. We're probably going to be in this prayer after the overview today for six or seven weeks maybe. Well, we're going to start, as you can see from the notes, with an overview today of this prayer. And in the coming weeks, we're going to focus on each individual part of the prayer. That's why it's going to take so long to go through. I don't want to just quickly move through it. Uh, with that in mind, let's pray. Because I, I really need to pray today before we get going, as always, for myself and hopefully... Uh, you all feel the same need. Holy Father, we come to you, all of us here who know you as our Lord and Savior, uh, as those who have been drawn to you by your Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. Uh, We've been able to see and enter the kingdom because of the work of your Spirit, because we've been born of your Spirit, and, and we're deeply grateful for that. And we always remember because of that Uh, what our departed brother Paul has taught us under the inspiration of your spirit, that we cannot understand spiritual things unless we do so through the illuminating power and presence of your Holy Spirit, that we are utterly dependent upon your Holy Spirit for rightly understanding your word. And so help us this week as always to begin with that recognition, to humbly recognize how desperately we need you to be good hearers of your word this morning. So help me, fill me and my brothers and sisters who know you with your spirit and with understanding this morning. Help us to be good hearers of your word. To be those about whom Jesus, when he spoke, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. We want to be those people who have ears to hear. And we want to hear what he has to say. So help us to that end, we pray. And as always, we'll give you all the glory for it because you alone deserve it. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. John MacArthur correctly writes of the Lord's Prayer that the prayer is a model, not merely a liturgy. It is notable for its brevity, simplicity, And comprehensiveness, that's a hard thing to combine all in one. But I think he's right about that. Charles Spurgeon once observed that our Lord Jesus gives us a model prayer here, which never can be excelled, containing all the parts of devotion. They do well who model their prayers upon this. And I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, That's exactly why Jesus gave the prayer, right? So that we could model our prayers Upon this prayer, as we study this model prayer, I think we'll discover uh, that these are very good assessments of it, and we'll proceed with our overview of the Lord's Prayer this morning, as you see in your notes, under two main headings. First, the context of the prayer, and this is where we'll cover the first part of verse 9, and we'll be looking at the second part of verse 9 next week, and then we'll look at the content of the prayer and get that overview I'm speaking of so that and I would I'd encourage you to hang on to this sheet because as we go through the coming weeks, it'll be a good place for you to go back to get your bearings, right, for how, how each part of the prayer fits in. 
And uh, first of all, we look at the context of the prayer. Uh, Our Lord Jesus invites us to keep the context in mind in his introduction to the prayer in the first part of verse 9 when he says, In this manner, therefore, pray. Now first, the word therefore obviously calls our attention to the preceding context. Jesus is calling our attention to the preceding context with the use of this word. And it tells us that Jesus is offering this model prayer in response to the kind of praying he's already discussed in verses 5 through 8. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Um, The ways we're not supposed to pray, right? If prayed sincerely then, uh, this prayer that Jesus gives us avoids both of the errors that he'd already pointed out. For example, it avoids the selfish praying of the hypocrites who pray only for their own glory. And you can see that if you look back in verse 5. So we'll read verses 1 through 5 now to see what our, get our bearings and see what I mean. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not send a trumpet before them. Uh, before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory for men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you do a charitable deed, he says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret and your father who seeds in secret will reward you openly. Now there he's talking about avoiding giving like the hypocrites. He's talking about matters that are considered matters of worship here. And then he says in verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Once again, For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And then he says, therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. And then says, in this manner, therefore, pray. So I'm going to tell you to pray in a way that isn't like the prayer of the hypocrites or the heathens that I've told you not to do. So this prayer that he's going to give us avoids the selfish praying of the hypocrites who are praying for their own glory, as we saw in verse 5. The Lord's Prayer is about God's glory, and we'll see that when we look at the content of the prayer. The whole focus of the prayer is ultimately about God's glory, not ours. Those who are praying for their own glory often forget that, and you can tell it in the way they pray frequently, except for those who've got really good at liking to sound like they're praying for God's glory uh, and don't mean it. But it also avoids the vain repetitions of the heathen who think they'll be heard for their long-winded prayers, as as we just read in verses 7 and 8. The Lord's Prayer is brief, and it gets right to the point, right? So that's the first thing to acknowledge here, that Jesus is inviting us to remember and to contrast what he's about to tell us about praying with what we've already heard him teach. He's told us how not to be in our praying, 
and our religious observances, right? And now he's going to give us an example of what a holy, what a righteous prayer would look like, a model for us. So, second, when Jesus says to pray in this manner, that means he's given us an example of what our praying should be like. He's not necessarily assuming that we will simply repeat this exact prayer. When you pray, this is the way you ought to pray. This is what your prayer should be like, right? It's a model. Although uh, Jesus isn't saying that we should never simply repeat this prayer either. Um, As a matter of fact, on another occasion, he also taught essentially the same prayer and indicated that it was to be repeated as he gave it, that there's nothing wrong with that. And that's in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 where we read, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Now it's interesting. Um, they wanted to be, learn how to pray like Jesus prayed, apparently. Uh, John's disciples taught, John the Baptist taught them how to pray like he prayed. And, and they, we want to pray like you, is apparently what was going on. So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say. He didn't say in this manner. He said, just say this, right? Now, he didn't mean that this is the only way they should ever pray. He's saying, here's a prayer you can pray if you want to pray more like me, right? When you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. That, that line indicates that this is intended to be a daily prayer that he's telling them they can pray. And forgive us our sins. Now, that's obviously a prayer Jesus didn't have to pray, right? <laughs> uh, but that they do. Uh, and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the version of a similar prayer. Now, we know that Jesus didn't, he preached the same kinds of things and taught the same kinds of things on different occasions. And sometimes he would change them up a little bit in the way he presented them. Uh, Some people say, well, Luke has a different version because he's wrong and there's, you know, or something like that. And they try to create conflict between the Gospels on things like this, which is just silly. Uh, Jesus could teach similar things at different times in different contexts for even slightly different purposes, right? And that's what he did here. He gave a similar prayer on another occasion. Anyway, that's the second thing. We've seen that Jesus points us to the context, that he's indicating this prayer is a model for our praying, that we don't have to pray these exact words, but nor does he have a problem with us praying these exact words, particularly if we're struggling with what to say when we pray. The, the only thing he would say is make sure you mean it. Don't be like the hypocrites who don't mean it. They're just trying to get attention, right? They're patting themselves on the back. He doesn't want us to be that way. So whatever we do, he wants us to be sincere. I want to also notice thirdly in this introduction to the prayer that the Greek text actually has both the second person plural pronoun you and the second person plural form of the verb translated to pray. So that tells me that Jesus is perhaps placing an emphasis here upon corporate prayer as well as a private prayer life. 
This is further emphasized in the opening of the prayer itself, in which we're told to address God as our Father. Not, just, not my Father, but our Father. And also in the body of the prayer, in which we're taught to pray, for example, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Do not lead us into temptation. Why does he keep putting the plural in there? I would say that although we can see that corporate prayer here is just as important as private prayer, and Jesus has told about us about going into your closet and praying, right? And we can pray this prayer even when we pray privately. But this a corporate prayer obviously should never be seen as a substitute for private prayer. In fact, given the order and emphasis of Jesus' discussion of the prayer in this passage, corporate prayer should flow naturally out of a private prayer life. He focused on private prayer already. Go and pray in secret. Not to be seen by men. But now he's giving a prayer that presumes a group. Also, on the one hand, we should not feel obligated to pray this exact prayer in order to be heard by God, although we should see it as a model for our praying. And on the other hand, we should delight in praying this very prayer at times, especially within the context of corporate worship, as long as we remember to pray it sincerely and from our hearts, as I said before. So we can draw, I think, those lessons from what we're gathering here just from the context and the opening of the prayer. But even if we pray this prayer privately, which I've done quite a bit lately, actually, and I, I, I've used it as a pattern for praying again all week long, where I'll, I'll begin the prayer and then I'll include things and just use it as my pattern. And I've been enjoying doing that a lot. But I've noticed with the constant emphasis on the plural, our Father, forgive us our sins, give us our daily bread and so forth. That's been a reminder to me that I'm a part of the body of Christ, and that whenever I'm praying, I shouldn't just care about me. I should care about my brothers and sisters in the Lord always when I pray. And I think that might be one of the reasons he built in the plurality in this prayer, the plural pronouns in it. The focus on the body of believers of whom we are a part throughout the prayer. When I'm praying then, I should first and foremost, as we'll see as we look at the body of the prayer, be concerned about the glory of God. I should love the Lord God with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. That should be first. But when I'm also praying, if I love him like I should, I should also be loving my neighbor as myself and caring about them as much as I care about myself when I pray. And I think that's why these plurals are sprinkled throughout this prayer. The whole thing is like a group prayer. I think here Kent Hughes offers also a helpful reminder when he writes that, quote, the obvious problem for all of us is that familiarity breeds contempt. In this case, surface familiarity. Some of us learn the Lord's Prayer at our mother's knees. We cannot count the times we have repeated it. We have said it again and again as children. We repeat repeat it today as adults. But there is a danger in our familiarity with its beauty. It it can become just beautiful words so that we say the Lord's Prayer without praying it. 
And isn't he right about that? There's a difference between simply saying it and actually praying it. And Jesus wants us to pray it and to pray like this when we pray. Of course, we'll gain a better understanding of the prayer, uh, and that'll help us avoid this danger of merely saying it. And we'll begin to get that better understanding as we move into our major heading number two here. After looking at the context of the prayer and the introduction and what we can hopefully gain from that, we're going to look at the content of the prayer. And as I understand it, and this, this is my own breakdown of the prayer, uh, so take it for what it's worth, uh, I think the prayer itself is divided into two parts, the first of which seeks God's glory and the second of which seeks our good. So first of all, we see that this prayer is a prayer for God's glory. There are three petitions in the first half of the prayer, each of which appears to be focused on the glory of God. In this regard, we're to seek first the glory of God's name, then the glory of God's kingdom, and then the glory of God's will. That's the way I'm breaking it down here. First of all, we'll see we're to seek the glory of God's name. In the second part of verse 9, we read, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. We should begin praying by reminding ourselves of our relationship to God as our Father. And although he is already a holy God, we're to pray that his name would be regarded as such by all. That's what we're praying when we say, holy be your name. It already is holy. So why are we praying it? Holy be your name. It's because we want to remember that and we want other people to recognize the holiness of his name. Now, that means that he's holy because his name represents who he is. And we're, we're to remember that he has graciously condescended, however, to us as sinners and made us his children. But think of it. We're speaking to the holy God, and we're calling him our father. Just think about that for a moment. We forget how mind-blowing that is until we stop to think about it. The holy God, completely without sin, infinite, omniscient, meaning all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, created everything that exists, including us. We get to be his children. We get to call him our father. We get to have a personal relationship with him. Jesus wants us to start prayer with acknowledging that. Who God is and who we are in relationship to him. So Jesus teaches us that prayer is about a personal relationship with a holy God. It is out of this relationship that we derive a desire to see his holiness holiness recognized by others as well. So that's what I'm calling the glory of God's name focus. And then there's the glory of God's kingdom where Jesus says, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. As members of the kingdom of heaven, 
which is, remember, how Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Those who are in the kingdom of heaven, what are they like, right? What's indicative of those who are in the kingdom of heaven? What's their experience? What do they really look like? What's a truly born-again person look like, right? Those are the real members of the kingdom. And as members of the kingdom, we should always remember that we pray that our lives are to be about advancing that kingdom that we're a part of. And that's why we pray, your kingdom come, the kingdom that we're members of. We cannot glorify God as we should without at the same time seeking the furtherance of his sovereign reign in our own lives and in the lives of others. We should also always look forward to and pray for the ultimate coming of his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth because that's ultimately where this kingdom comes to its final fruition, right? Uh, Perhaps when we get into that part of the prayer, we'll go back and look at Uh, Once again, this already not yet tension that we've already looked at when we were looking at the Beatitudes in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, where there's a sense in which the kingdom is already here, but a a sense also in which it has not yet fully come. It's coming more and more now as the kingdom of God through the church advances in the world, right? And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for that, right? The continuing advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God in the world today. But the ultimate fulfillment of that awaits awaits the future. And we're praying for that ultimate fulfillment as well. More on that when we get to that point in the coming weeks. So there's a focus, I believe, on the glory of God's name and his kingdom, and also the glory of God's will. In the second part of verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should always be praying with a heart that is so desirous of obeying God and seeing his will accomplished that we are not satisfied unless his will is done. In our own lives and in the world, we want his will to be done just as it is in heaven. More on that again in the coming weeks, what that means. So with these first three petitions, Jesus teaches us that our ultimate priority must always be about seeking God's glory first in our lives, because that's really thematically what this is about. He shows us that if we're really God's children, then we will show this by honoring him as our father and wanting his will to be done as his kingdom to be advanced. As John Stott reminds us in his very helpful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, It is comparatively easy to repeat the words of the Lord's Prayer like a parrot or indeed a heathen babbler. To pray them with sincerity, however, has revolutionary implications for it expresses the priorities of a Christian. We are constantly under pressure to conform to the self-centeredness of secular culture. When that happens, we become concerned about our own little name, liking to see it embossed on our notepaper or hitting the headlines in the press and defending it when it is attacked. We're concerned about our own little empire, bossing, influencing, and manipulating people to boost our ego. And about our own silly little will, always want our own way and getting upset when it is frustrated. 
But in the Christian counterculture, our top priority concern is not our name, kingdom, and will, but God's. Whether we can pray these petitions with integrity is a searching test of the reality and depth of our Christian profession. Amen to that. He hit the nail on the head there. So, perhaps many of us will want to repent today of how we sometimes care too little about God's glory, even when we actually do pray for it. We forget what, we, what it means when we're praying for it. We just are so used to saying the words. And we can begin to pray sincerely for his glory. And then we are ready, as Jesus teaches us next, to pray for ourselves. Which brings us to the second point about this model prayer. Not only is it a prayer for God's glory, it's a prayer for our good. Because God cares about our good. And he wants us to pray for it, right? And the second half of the prayer also consists of essentially three petitions in which we're to seek both our physical and our spiritual good, as I understand it at least. And as we go through this in the coming weeks, you have to see if you agree with my assessment here. I hope you will, but be good Bereans, as always. Notice, first of all, here, our, it's about our physical good. In verse 11, Jesus teaches us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. Notice, first of all, that the word daily indicates that the whole prayer is really intended as a model for praying every day. Not just once in a while or at church on Sunday, right? This is the kind of praying we should be doing every single day. These should be daily concerns that we've already talked about in the prayer and that we're about to talk about. All these petitions should be daily petitions, in other words. Here, however, Jesus is especially teaching us that we're to daily recognize our dependence upon God as the one who ultimately meets all of our physical needs. When we're praying for our daily bread. That's what really what we're praying for. We're, we're to express that dependence in prayer. In fact, if we cannot sincerely pray this way every day, haven't we really lost sight of God as the sovereign giver of all that we have? If, if there's a day I don't think I really need to pray that he'll give me my daily bread, haven't I forgotten that he's the one who gives it to me every day? Haven't I slipped into thinking, well, I'm do, really kind of doing this on my own. I don't really need to ask him. You see, in, the, in first century culture, often uh, you had a lot of day laborers and they wouldn't be able to eat that day unless they earned some money that day, right? So praying for their daily bread really hit home for them. And it was a reminder that they were constantly dependent every single day on God. And we forget that through our relatively comfortable lifestyles. We're wealthy. And they weren't. The poorest person in this room is wealthy compared to the average person in first century Israel. And they're wealthy compared to the average person in the world today. And so we forget too easily that the paycheck we earn, the food we eat every day, the car we drive, the house we live in, the clothes we wear, the beds we sleep in, etc., are all really gifts from God. We wouldn't have any of them if it weren't for his blessings.
as Thomas Constable has put it, daily bread refers to the necessities of life, not its luxuries. I think he's right. Necessities, not luxuries, is what Jesus has in mind here. This is a prayer he writes for our needs, not our greeds. Leave that up to the prosperity gospel people who are heretics, right? That's how they pray. The request, he writes, is for God to supply our needs day by day. The expression, this day or today, our daily bread, reflects first century life in which workers receive their pay daily. It also reminds disciples that we only live one day at a time. And each day we are dependent on God to sustain us. I think this is the attitude our Lord Jesus wants us all to have every day. That's why he wants us to pray this way. But now that he is focused upon our physical good, we'll turn now to the last two petitions, which I think both focus on our spiritual good. The second is the forgiveness of past sin. That's the, that's the second um, of these petitions for our good. And this one is on our spiritual good, dealing with the forgiveness of past sin. Notice that Jesus says in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And of course, this is a euphemism for sin. And again, remembering that this is a prayer that is to be prayed every day, we may see that Jesus assumes that we will need to ask for God's forgiveness every day. Isn't that the assumption behind this? If he's teaching his disciples, pray every day that God will forgive your sins. Isn't he assuming every day they're going to need it? He also assumes that we need a daily reminder of a truly repentant heart, which is one that is forgiving others as well. Think about that, what he's assuming here. He's assuming every day I need to be reminded of my own need for forgiveness and my own need to be forgiving of others. I've got to build that into my daily prayer life. I won't, love, I won't glorify God as I should, and I won't love other people as I should if that's not built into my daily prayer life. That deep awareness. John Stott is again helpful when he writes this. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. I think that's the right kind of way to take what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is teaching us that we cannot be sincere in asking forgiveness for ourselves if we have an unforgiving heart towards someone else. If I'm coming to God and asking him to forgive me and I don't want to forgive anyone else, I don't even understand how much I need to be forgiven of yet. Thirdly, the third petition here, which is the second one focused on our spiritual good, involves being delivered from future temptation. Past sins, future future temptation to sin. (laughs) Uh, Here, Jesus says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Here he also assumes that we will face a daily battle with sin. And that we are utterly dependent upon God's enabling grace to win that battle. 
he assumes not only will we daily need to ask for forgiveness, but we're daily going to be tempted and need God to help us deliver us from that temptation. We're in a spiritual war. So in this second half of the prayer, we are taught to always recognize that we are utterly dependent upon God for all that we really need and that he alone is the supplier of these needs. So we've therefore seen so far that this model prayer is first a prayer for God's glory and that second, it's a prayer for our good. And this leads me to my third and final point here on the content of the prayer. That is, it is a prayer for our good, for God's glory. God's glory, again, always being the main thing. And that's why Jesus says what he says in the last part of verse 13. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, when Jesus uses the word for here, the Greek hati, he's giving the reason for the preceding petitions. Why are we praying all this? For God's glory, ultimately. This is the best way to glorify God, to begin with the fact that we have a relationship with him as a holy God, and he is our father, right? To begin there. He's our father in heaven, right? To care about his will being done, his kingdom being advanced. And then when we're praying for our own good, our own good, it's in that context that we're praying it. And then when we get to the end of the prayer, we got to remember it's in that context that we're praying for our own good. So Jesus is saying that when we pray, as I said, for our own physical and spiritual well-being, we're doing it not because these things are an end in themselves, but because in this way God's kingdom, power, and glory are most fully manifested in and through us. Think about how much it, it glorifies God when other people around us see us fully dependent on God and recognizing that. That's the best way to testify to our holy God in this world. That's one of them anyway. As John Piper has so ably stated, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I could be a summary of this prayer in a way. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's kind of what this prayer is about to a large extent. So God's glory and our good are not two separate ends. And too often Christians forget this. I like to constantly remind us of it. They're not two separate ends. They're so inextricably linked that we cannot genuinely seek one without seeking the other. If you're seeking your good in the way God wants you to, you'll be seeking his glory. And if you're seeking God's glory in the way he wants you to, you'll be seeking the best thing for yourself. And this prayer sort of teaches us that. It's a prayer for our good, for God's glory. I'd like to end then with some questions for each of us to ask him or herself. For example, we could each simply ask, what about me? Do I typically begin my praying with reflection upon who God is as my heavenly father? Do I make it my priority to put his kingdom and glory first in my prayers? 
Or do I feel like I can skip that and get to what I really think is important, and that's what I need today? <laughs> right? <laughs> We've got our priorities backwards, right, if that's the case. So, on the other hand, do I regularly spend most of my time in prayer asking for what I need or what I think I need, which may not be the same thing as what I really need, rather than seeking God's glory, which, by the way, is what I really need to do if I want to do what's best for me. Jesus gave it equal time in this prayer, didn't he? Uh, albeit with an emphasis, with an emphasis upon God's kingdom and glory. Um, some have even seen a, in the last three petitions a Trinitarian emphasis. The, the Father provides our daily bread. The Son provides forgiveness through the atonement. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to overcome future sin. But that's possible, but I'm not sure Jesus del- intended that here. But it's possible that it certainly reflects that. At any rate, I hope this has been a helpful overview for you today. And I hope it has sort of whet your appetite for wanting to get more deeply into the Lord's Prayer. And for those of you who have never heard me teach through the Lord's Prayer or never gone through it with me, um, I hope you're wanting to stick around and do that. And for those of you that had, I hope today has made you think, well, I want to get into this prayer again. I think I need it. I know I do. I know it. Already I've been convicted by this prayer and getting back into it again. It's a good, this prayer is a good way to realign our priorities every day. So even if we don't pray it every day, maybe we should read it every day before we pray, at the very least. With that in mind, let's pray. Holy Father, For all the believers in this room, it is my prayer that we have been convicted where we need to be convicted of uh, maybe misaligned priorities, maybe of insignificant ways for getting what's most important about our relationship with you and what that means. Sometimes when we pray, we fall into, without realizing it, praying as though you exist for us instead of remembering we exist for you. Help this prayer to correct that, I pray. And, Lord, I also thank you for the encouragement it has been to us as well, that we get to pray to you like this and talk to you anytime we want, because you have made us your children. And Lord, for anyone here who is not yet to come to know you as his or her Savior, it is our prayer for him or her today that you would do for them what you've done for us. Open their eyes to the truth, we pray. Help them to see Jesus for who he really is. The one who, though perfectly God, took on human flesh became also perfectly man in one person who lived a righteous life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, who died on the cross and took the punishment for our sins, who rose again on the third day, conquering death on our behalf, who ascended to your right hand where he reigns over the universe and ever lives to intercede for those of us who have trusted in him. Help them to trust in him, I pray, Lord. 
cease trusting in themselves and trust wholly in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, as their Savior and Lord. And we'll give you all the glory for what you do as a result. Pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As always, I thank you for your kind attention.